going to start this podcast, Aaron, a bit complimentary, unlike uh, normally. And, I, you know, I want to get off on a, on a good foot. Um, and, you know, t- speaking of the anthem that's associated with Liverpool Football Club, You'll Never Walk Alone. Yeah. I'm going to say it's actually one of my favourite songs in general, not just football songs in general. I think it's that good a song. It is actually a really lovely song. Uh, nice meaning behind it. Um, and sounds lovely being sung by like a group of people in a football stadium. It does. It's genuinely touching. I don't. I don't know if you know the. Uh, you're familiar like the backstory of it. Go on. I do, but go on. So yeah, it was uh, Hammerstein. Uh, I think it was originally wrote by Hammerstein in like the 1940s. Yeah, and then it was covered by a few people in the 50s. I think Sinatra did a cover, and Elvis. I think even did a cover. He did. Uh, but it was Jerry and the Pacemakers, um, a lovely London band around the time of Beatles that made it really successful. That's true, yeah. And that's the version that they pump out at Anfield Stadium. Um, mm. It is a lovely version, although I do always notice that uh, having been there in and on, on television, the the fans always end up increasing the tempo. They just like, it's like uh, when people clap at a gig, it's a, it's a disaster. They're always out of time. <laughs> So it starts with this nice little waltz going on. And by the end of it, I think the Liverpool fans have left the song long behind. <laughs> and they're in some sort of techno rave version of You'll Never Walk Alone. Is it because they're like gene themselves up slowly like the Icelandic slow clap? Oh, yeah. Well, that is with class, every, though. With every passing verse, it just the tempo increases. Yeah, but the Icelandic slow clap, right? Honestly, that is one of the most impressive crowd participation things ever because like if you have a, a gig with a with a drum kit helping you stay in time people don't seem to be able to clap in time with the kit but all of these Icelandic people seem to have this almost telepathic understanding of when exactly to clap together and I'm like they if every crowd was Icelandic gigs would sound class <laughs> <laughs> they would be another <laughs> instrument I, I remember the, the first time I saw it and I was like, ooh, that's going to be the next, like, uh, Vuvuzela thing that the football crowds are going to be doing. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm everyone sure. can do that. The, the slow clap. I'm not sure every crowd is as capable of the slow clap as the Icelandic crowd. I think it's it's being appropriated to loads of different, um, for, uh, loads of different nations. Mm. Okay, yeah. Well, it's definitely less annoying than the Vuvuzela. Let's just say that. Oh, yeah. I'm glad that died out. I'm actually really surprised you started with a compliment because, like, we tore um, your club, Manchester United, to shreds in terms of... Uh, <laughs> we absolutely did not. We did. And then they got torn to shreds at the, at the weekend as well. And um, at no, last... This, this is a discussion about football club DNA, not about what happens on the actual football pitch. Okay, but your club has shit DNA then. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not true. Absolutely that's a, not that's true. a fair a fair and valid and accurate statement, I believe. No, well, I think continuing on from the discussion that we had the last episode where we talked about DNA, I think we might have missed a step. Not like us. You no. know, we're normally, um, we're quite thorough in our research. We put a lot of thought into crafting a well-designed, manicured and pedicured <laughs> podcast for our listeners to digest over their morning coffee or their, you know, their afternoon or evening brandy. 
whatever. Listen, you, know, whatever. you can have our whatever. morning brandy and evening coffee. We don't judge. Like I, yeah, I'm exactly. Not. We're having morning brandies right now. Morning brandy with your coffee. Brandy coffee. I think they I call it French coffee. I believe they call that an Irish coffee. No, Irish coffee is whiskey. French coffee is brandy. Yeah, but they're they're very they're similar. If we're going to talk about DNA, surely brandy and whiskey are somehow related. God, God, don't say that to whiskey drinkers, man, or brandy drinkers for that. I, I just don't see the brandy drinkers being as rough a bunch, but they're not. They're, all, they're, it, they're very dissimilar drinks. It's all part of the spirit branch. Yeah, but like you wouldn't say vodka and Cointreau were the same as each other, like, <laughs> and they're spirit branches as well. Stick your spirit could. branch. <laughs> so yeah, you are correct. We usually uh, flesh things out a little bit more, explain ourselves a little bit better, and we didn't really explain as such DNA and culture and the differences between the two, did we? No, I think for me, DNA is maybe slightly different from culture and where I think it differs is that um, DNA is probably something that a a football club likes to uh, have as a consistent running through um, from manager to players, you know, over a prolonged period of time. So if we go back to the Manchester United example, what they proclaimed to be their their DNA was uh, investment in youth. Um, well, that's that was pretty much it. And then that was pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty winning, much it. Winning, winning counter attacking football. A, 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 well, I wouldn't even say counter attacking. Let's just settle on an attacking style of football. Positive football. Yeah, not, not negative so, football, as people might call it. No, which is just called think, defending. <laughs> yeah, and I think maybe culture and DNA are probably very closely aligned and when it becomes when a culture becomes DNA is probably when it's successful so you know and when it's continuously successful as well so I think something needs to be needs to be for probably a very prolonged period of time to have proven successful in order for people to consider well that's just the way it is and when it stops then people say well They've lost their DNA, which is what people would associate with Manchester United. So, yeah, we. So let's talk about Liverpool then, and let's talk about what some of the things definitely we associate with Liverpool culture, um, and let's maybe decide whether that uh, maybe that's extensive enough to you know assign it also to the Liverpool DNA. So that is, we that started is a lovely talking, way to do it. Actually, very we well. Started Thank you. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm good at words and stuff like that. <laughs> you sure? Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, the first and most obvious thing. You've been to games in Anfield. I have not. Uh, it's definitely something I want to do. Um, but probably one of the main things people always talk about Anfield is the atmosphere, the cop. Yeah. And one of the main things that creates a great atmosphere around Anfield, I think, is you'll never walk alone. For sure. Tell me about, like, what's, what's the experience like being in Anfield and listening to that song come on before the match? Oh, it's like, um, to me, I, it, it just feels so iconic at this point. It would be like getting to to walk on the set of the original Star Wars or, you know... Um, you know, it's just like it has that has that thing at like certain places in the world. Like you don't think until you stand 
underneath the Eiffel Tower that it actually would seem so cool. Like I kind of assumed when I went to Paris and went to the Eiffel Tower, I was like, it's just going to be there. It'd be grand. But when you actually see it, you go, it is actually really damn cool. And there's this feeling about something that iconic and you'll never walk alone, especially obviously with my affinity towards Liverpool football club anyway. Um, having had amazing nights through a TV, you know, watching like the 2005 Champions League final and, you know, just watching some of the great games over the years. Um, I say it's 2005 Champions League final because through most of my life, there wasn't enough success to cheer about with Liverpool. But um, yeah, like it's, by the, the match that I had been to was before they had won the Champions League and the league with Klopp. But um, definitely I was watching a special team as well. But hearing that start up just before the match, and the volume creep up and up and up among the supporters until it comes to like we all know like the roar of the chorus um it's an amazing feeling like you know it is just spine tingling it is everything that they say it is like it's all the superlatives that they use in describing it anywhere else and it is special like it just is um and it's just i I suppose it's something very uh tribal and built into us as well to have this feeling when many human voices all sing together you know and especially the added tribalism of, of football and you know the pride that goes behind it and all the uh, all the testosterone flying around as well I suppose helps a bit as well <laughs> What was the match that you went to see? Oh it was uh, Liverpool Everton the one that Divock Oh Marie so scored. even more even yeah. more tribalistic than normal Yeah oh well like the tribalistic fixture I, I, I suppose but um, and it was the amazing game where Divock Origi scored in the last second while Jordan Pickford flopped around like like Jordan Pickford But anyway uh, Jordan Pickford aside um, I guess when we're talking about DNA and culture, it's definitely very culturally significant for Liverpool fans because uh, Liverpool, I think, as a city, is quite um, culturally uh, unique. Like, they've got a great history with music going back all the way to the 60s. As mm-hmm. we said, Jerry and the Pacemakers was obviously around the same time as the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you know, they're a, a cultural phenomenon. And then um, I think people from Liverpool particularly now I'm only judging this from listening to interviews I've heard with footballers who've played for Liverpool and the kind of pride they associate with actually representing a team from that particular area. Yeah. I watched a really good interview with Jamie Carragher that he did with Gary Neville, where he was walking around the streets of Bootle. I watched the same he, one. Yeah, he was taught, Jamie Carragher was saying that he really believes that football clubs really need to... Um, not necessarily have players from the area in the team, but they need to identify or show the same kind of attributes that people from that area show. And what he was saying is that people from Liverpool are kind of like to have an open at them, you know, they kind of have a bit of a chip on their shoulder um, that they're, you know, not saying that they're aggressive, but they're very in your face. Um, Well, understandably so. It's it's been an underprivileged area in in the UK in total for basically ever. It was like one of the biggest cities in the industrial revolution powered by mostly uh, people who had traveled to England to, to work a lot of Irish people. And yeah. still, to, still to this day kind of has, um, there is like 
internal discrimination against people from Liverpool from other parts of the UK. Like even just, you know, it, it seems innocuous, it seems harmless, but like even Gary Neville will throw it like a, a sly dig about, you know, whether your car would be safe or whether your house would be safe, you know, in, in Liverpool. Like, and like, so it has a reputation uh, as, and maybe this all feeds into like why they have that chip on their shoulder, why they uh, have that underdog syndrome and that fight in them, you know? Mm. And it seems yeah. to have seeped into the cl- into the football club. To be honest, like there's been a lot of times where, against odds, they've done, they've had some pretty pretty great results. You know, yeah. And I think buoyed on by the football fans, particularly when you look at European nights and the great atmosphere that's created in Anfield, and also that is um, that's kind of buoyed. The crowd are buoyed up by the singing of "You'll Never Walk Alone" and. I think um, that's probably, for me, what tips it from being culturally uh, significant to part of Liverpool's DNA. So if we're going to say, does Liverpool have DNA? And we talk specifically about the uh, the relationship with the fans and the, the singing of You'll Never Walk Alone. I definitely think that's one tick in Liverpool's box because... If you look back at Liverpool's history since the 60s, 70s, 80s and uh, maybe not so much 90s because it was a bit of a barren period for them. But um, there was so many moments outside of football that uh, really brought Liverpool together. You know, you had the Hillsborough disaster and then you also had what happened in Heisel. But then there was also um, uh, there was a few other things as well. And um, that song seemed to have brought the fans together outside of football Um, so I think because of that I would definitely say that song is so significant and it definitely I would say it's probably part of the Liverpool DNA yeah well like even Sean Cox like you know something like that happening like the disaster at the Roma game um, you know this, this poor man was assaulted and as a people and as a club they seem to really come together in those moments like it's it's a it's a whether they're up or whether they're down there seems to be a a defiance and uh i don't know they they they, they like, like you mentioned hazel and, and and hillsborough like they seem to really come into their own in situations like that like you know coming together as a club as a community as a city you know and i yeah. think that you're probably right then to say that like you know it transcends culture and is kind of part of the DNA of, of the club and the fans. And, you know, you can't have one without the other. Um, yeah. I would say, I think that there's something about as well, in it, like this is globally in, in football, like when places are less affluent in relative in their country or just less affluent relative to the world, the fans tend to be a bit more passionate. Like you, we've heard like, Jose Mourinho saying when he was at Chelsea that like, you know, if he wished he had Liverpool fans there, you know, and obviously Chelsea is famously quite affluent, you know, or you look at like South America, the fans are unreal in Brazilian football and Argentinian football. Like people who go over there say it is, um, it is a mental experience. Like, you know, um, I recently heard an interview with Samuel L. Jackson where he went to a Boca Juniors game and said, this is incredible. Like, it's just the most terrifying thing but also the most exhilarating thing I've ever been to you know mm. and, and and I suppose it is something about the like the working class is that like you know life can be hard and, and uh, you know there's a lot of work to be done and maybe like I really felt this at, at, at the Liverpool game was that 
I was I happened to be standing in like you know nowadays they talk about Premier League games and a lot of the seats being corporate and maybe you know for for traveling visitors and obviously I'm a traveling visitor but I was sitting among a lot of people from Liverpool and you really got the sense that this was like this could make or break their week Liverpool winning or losing like it it meant so much to them yeah it does seem like that way and I don't know if you've watched any of the Amazon documentaries but um, the Spurs one was great because it gave really good insights in what it's like to play at a football club what happens behind the scenes at a very top level football club but the Netflix documentary with Sunderland I found was just as fascinating because it showed a lot more and dealt uh, and spoke with the fans a lot more than the Spurs documentary did and you know Sunderland right beside Newcastle up there in the northeast um, very working class industrious city and similar to what you were saying people just live for Saturday and live for their football club and yeah for some people uh, it becomes more than just a football club and it is it's part of their individual DNA as well so well, it's the, it's, 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 they put a lot of their money and time in their life into it like mm. you know and they probably couldn't get any Spurs fans for that uh, documentary because they're all <laughs> had, they all probably had, no but they all probably had to catch their plane home yeah very true so yeah. I mean they didn't have time to stop for chit chat do you, you remember that Tom Hardy was the voiceover for the Spurs documentary that was so weird and people were suggesting, oh, we've got a famous Spurs, uh, we've got a famous Spurs supporter. Turns out that um, Tom Hardy is actually a Brentford supporter. Yeah, yeah. He just so, did it for the payday, lads. Don't, yeah, don't, don't get carried away. Exactly. But uh, I guess if we're going to talk about uh, You'll Never Walk Alone being DNA, we should probably talk very quickly before we move on about some of the, the brother and sister clubs that also use as an anthem, of course, up. Up uh, north to Liverpool in Scotland, you got Celtic mm. who adapted it. And there's always been a bit of an argument over who adapted it first. And um, I think the... I actually believe I Celtic the, have a strong argument to say that they might have. I think Celtic's well, argument is pretty strong. I, I don't really care who had it first myself now, but expand upon it, go on. Well, no, I just... My understanding of it was that Liverpool started playing it back in the 60s uh, Bill Shankly heard the song and Liverpool were looking for a anthem or a club song and he played it uh, at the start of one of the games and he was like, yeah, that's the song for us because back in the 60s when you went to a football game the on the Tannoy system before the match, the football teams would play the top 10 from the charts. So, uh, because, you know, there was there was television was only in its infancy there was no such thing as the internet so like the only form of entertainment people kind of had was the radio so music and and the charts was huge um and that's why uh you'll never walk alone first started getting played in anfield because when it was released by jerry and the pacemakers i think it was in 1963 it was top of the charts for four weeks so it got played at Anfield before every game and then they just kind of adopted it. And then Celtic played Liverpool in a European game in Anfield and it was played obviously before the game. And apparently the, the people in charge at Celtic heard it and went, that's a great song, let's adopt it for ourselves. Ah. So that's, that's the story I, I read. Okay, well, I like that one. Yeah. Okay. I was fully convinced by a Celtic fan one night and I, it kind of boiled down to me going, yeah, I don't care. 
<laughs> you know, like I mean, you can have, we can have we can have the same song. It's it's grand. Like you know, one of us doesn't have to stop using the song unless you know Hammerstein turns around and says we have to. But I'm pretty sure it's dead. <laughs> so, probably, yeah, probably. His but estate could as well. tell us to stop. You know, it's funny as well because Jurgen Klopp's former club in Germany, Brucey Dorman, also adopted the song themselves. So maybe it's. Uh, Maybe we might see Jurgen Klopp at Celtic after he leaves Liverpool. You never know. Yeah, yeah. He gives out about the ra- he gives out about the rain in Liverpool, man. He's not going to go go to Glasgow. <laughs> you never know. No, I can't. I can't see uh, Jurgen Klopp going up there for a deep fried Mars bar. <laughs> Could I you imagine? Um, he'd definitely try it. He probably need. Yeah, he'd probably he have would. to start wearing glasses again after that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I feel with Jurgen, about Jurgen Klopp without glasses. Oh no! It's uh, it's so like he, he's my, he's definitely my man crush. Let's just put the, get that out of the way. But he was more my man crush when he wore glasses. Yeah, you you've fallen out of love a bit with him. I wouldn't say that now, but the, you know, there's just he had a great look going on with glasses, and it's not everyone who can do that. You know, I know. He said it himself. Oh, well, Colin is wearing a lovely pair of <laughs> spectacles here. That's just that's that's why you're getting that tone, but um. He said it himself. He said he's like I'm still not used to looking at myself. I'm not sure I like the way I look without the glasses. But he should yeah. just be a hipster and get the um, you know, the lens, the f- just the regular glass frames with no lenses in them. Yeah, I reckon I have him down as a as a hipster off the pitch. I imagine that if he was managing a football club in London, he'd be on the streets of Shoreditch every weekend. I don't think so. He's really pr- private dude. Tuchel is the is the hipster. That's true, actually. Yeah. For I'd sure. say he enjoys. I'd say he enjoys living in London. But anyway, let's move on from Jurgen Klopp and his spectacular spectacles, uh, sure. or lack lack thereof at the moment. He's actually um, a good person to bring up though, because he he um he's changed some things in Liverpool. If we're talking about DNA and culture, and we should touch on that in a bit. Well, uh, why don't we touch on it right now? Well, I think what well, there's a thing I know that we were going to talk about, and we should we should talk about before we get to what Jurgen Klopp there is. Um, the boot room and the boot room yeah. being a huge part of Liverpool's history. Definitely. Uh, you could call it like their, their DNA for quite a while, but I don't think you can call it their DNA anymore. And this kind of boils down to more of what we were talking about with, with United. And you see, it was easier in a way to talk about with United because they're being so unsuccessful at the minute that, you know, that some of the managers they're thinking of changing would completely change the way they play football. But I think, fans would be behind the success were they to be more successful. Yeah. So like there was a similar thing that happened at Liverpool. Like you had the progression of the boot room, Bill Shankly, Bob Paisley, Joe Fagan and Kenny Dalglish. All mm. like you could draw a, a straight line to how they all ended up one after the other. And they maintained a certain way of playing football. They maintained a certain culture around the club and a certain mood around the club. And obviously each one had learned from the last. So you could kind of see a progression. Like, can you imagine that happening today? It, it's unheard of. But in the time after that, you you had like people like Graeme Souness be... I think Graeme Souness was the only one actually in, in a lot of ways who didn't lean into that immediately he, he decided I'm going to change things immediately got rid of the red nets at Anfield got rid of the this is Anfield sign just you know change training change everything and maybe in in a lot of ways he was probably right to go okay that time's over this is a new time but 
because he didn't have the success to back it up and maybe he did it a bit too soon it, it didn't work but a lot of managers over the years in Liverpool have spoken about the pressure of the the of the legacy of the boot room and trying to to do things the, the Liverpool way and in my in my time like following Liverpool the only two managers I think kind of went against that grain were Rafa and Klopp and Rafa did it because Rafa's Rafa and he's an obstinate guy and he he's just going to do like I think Rafa's Rafa everywhere but Klopp made a point of saying no more boot room no more like they were not talking about that anymore we're, we're getting rid of the the shadow of the past which was a great past but like this is we're starting a new we're 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 writing the history now and it's going to be a new era in Liverpool and I've spoken about this before but I think it's, it was such a psychologically brilliant thing to do because players staff fans everyone felt the pressure of that and felt like the the need to relive past glories by doing it the way it was done and and, and it just isn't and in that way yes the boot room is a brilliant part of Liverpool's history yes it was its DNA for a time but I can't call it its DNA anymore like I mean you know the what what they're doing with Klopp now is more like Klopp's DNA like I mean and even at that, that's changeable. Like, I mean, Mines played differently to Dortmund. Liverpool played differently to Dortmund. You know, it's not like they all play exactly the same because personnel change what you do. Of course, Gegenpressen is a part of his game, but like we, I've even seen in his time at Liverpool, the Gegenpressen has changed. You know, so... Like, I think DNA can be transient as well. It can be there for a time and become, because it becomes... It, like it needs a certain amount of time to become DNA, but at the same time, it's like, well, that was the DNA of the 60s to the 80s. That's done now. You know, um, I think what Jurgen Klopp... It's, what, it's interesting, just to jump in on your point there, it's interesting how you said DNA can be transient because it seemed very much from our conversation last week when we were discussing Manchester United that you seen that DNA was something that was kind of inbred into a football club and either you had it or you didn't so now do you think you've maybe changed your opinion or are you just looking at it from a different perspective being a Liverpool fan no I think it may have changed my opinion a little bit yeah which is fair it's allowed um, you may never change an opinion <laughs> you see it, it's just I think when it comes to the style of play or the way of running um, the management it's impossible to make that last forever like, mm. you know, in fact, if you did, you probably wouldn't be successful anyway, because surely I'm sure like some brilliant tactical mind who's, who's more who's more well versed on the tactics of the game could turn around and show us how the 1999 United team and the way they played and the way they trained would be mid table today. You know, and, and like that's not taking anything away from them. you just compete in the in the in the in the era you're in mm. you know so so to play the same way and to do things the same way i think it, like you know they they say once you know you, once you stop changing you die like you know so i mean change is an inevitable part of of sport and competition you're all like mm. you're always trying to get the edge on your competitor and by that very um notion you have to change all the time mm -hmm. so are we are we saying that 
you can very much have a DNA, but it, it can be specific to a certain era. Yeah. Yeah, and, but, but you can you can espouse to certain things like you can espouse to like to to broad things like okay like we want to play attacking football that's fine you know like attacking football is broad enough to say okay we can play counter attacking football we can play pressing football we can play switch football we can play you know um, like like a narrow a narrow field and then an expansive field like you know you can play loads of different ways of playing attacking football but you know within that there's a lot of change there's a lot it allows a lot of change so i think saying the culture here at manchester united or the culture here at liverpool is attacking football is probably fair saying the culture here is only counter-attacking football i don't believe is as fair and then when it comes to fans sorry but like most of the time they will be happy with success over you know an exact brand of football i think also, the i think the um the representation that uh, a dna can only be attached to a football team that plays attacking football is probably a bit misconstrued because no one's ever going to say their club's got a DNA if they're not successful or if they're losing. Um, so it's only really when teams are winning. And how do you win a football game? You score more goals than the other team. Therefore, you yeah. play more attacking um, as a way to score more goals. So then people will attach success to attacking football and will say, well, now this is part of our DNA because we're an attacking team and we win a lot of games. But like I said, people will only attach that to a particular club if they're winning. So I think, um, you know, it's only winning is when, winning is the culture. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. winning is part of the DNA. I, and I once you stop, once you stop winning, then do you no longer have a DNA or is it just is it not a, a is it not a cool talking point or a cool marketing phrase? that you can use to f- sell a few shirts or sell a few sell a few Gansies online for 50 pounds. Mid table is our DNA. <laughs> <laughs> Would yeah, you buy it's that? The er- it's the Everton Cup. <laughs> well, it might be the might be might be the Man United Cup at the time time uh, Ollie's done with you. Would you stop? Mid table is our DNA. Would you stop? Would you stop? Well, I think uh, what I'd like to talk about as well is Liverpool and European football. Mm. Because for me, I think more so than any other English football club, and maybe because there was a concentrated period of time where Liverpool won uh, three uh, Champions Leagues in the space of five or six years. Yeah. Back in the late 70s and early 80s. And that was during a period of sustained success for English clubs Mm. in Europe. You had Nottingham Forest who won the champion, or at the time, the European Cup twice. You also had Aston Villa win it. Um, and then, of course, Liverpool won it three times as well. Um, so uh, it was at a time where English teams were the big teams in Europe and Liverpool were the most successful team domestically. So that transferred over to European success. So I think having the three titles concentrated maybe is a uh, it's a bit um, uh, it's different than like the last kind of two they've won because yeah. at the time uh, very much so in 2005 they definitely weren't challenging for the title um, 
and the last the last Champions League they won although they were challenging for the title uh, they hadn't won the Premier League in 25 years mm. so for me looking at Liverpool I've always been quite envious because uh, it's great as a Man United, yeah it's great as a Man United supporter winning you know 13 Premier Leagues and being so successful but the Champions League has just kind of got that bit of aura around it and I look at Liverpool and even though they've not been as successful domestically over the last 25 years they still seem to have this I don't know this special sort of aura around them when it comes to European football I don't know as a Liverpool fan do you feel that do you feel that when you watch a game in the Champions League or whether it was the UEFA Cup or the Europa League when they were playing in that competition do you felt that Liverpool just had something over their competitors when they were playing particularly at home well, this is where it gets interesting to me, right? Is that it's the the residue of success in a given competition. Like, you know, like you said it, three times in fairly quick succession in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and then suddenly, you know, over time, you know, and I think Istanbul has to be thrown in there as well because of what a, what a comeback. And like, you know, it's kind of like that never, you're never really beaten thing that's also now kind of espoused to Liverpool. And like... I should actually just correct myself. It was four times in the space of... Um, you're, yeah, yeah. Like six, six or seven years. Yeah, so. you're, yeah. But um, so, you know, you have, you have that happening. Um, and what that seems to have done to to Liverpool fans for one players who come to Liverpool managers who come to Liverpool and probably most importantly opposition teams there is this aura that like you know if you think about it some of these players haven't earned but yet Liverpool just seems to have this thing in in Europe like not to say that they haven't had bad seasons in Europe like you know Brendan Rodgers season in Europe was terrible um the season after they uh won the Champions League in 2005 it was a terrible uh, season in the in the Champions League. Like uh, I think they were knocked out in the group stages, or at least the first knockout stage. I remember a Samao Sambrosa goal for Benfica being particularly damning to us. But like, yeah, I definitely. It's funny the the residue of success and 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 the manner of that success definitely seems to. Um, it definitely seems to stick around and starts to to mean something to everybody involved like people I don't think people love drawing Liverpool in the Champions League you know they never love they never love doing that and it, and it makes me wonder as well like why certain ones seem to to give you that like you know why are why doesn't why doesn't Manchester United have the same feeling in Europe after their comeback against Bayern Munich you know and that, that was a treble year well, why don't they have that like I don't like that seems to me like a very dramatic, you know, win an iconic run to the cup as well. Like, and to me, I don't understand, you know, that not being something that's elevated United to that kind of because they're not as feared in Europe as Liverpool. And sometimes, no. sometimes, sometimes with the squads they had, they should have been. You yeah, know, um, yeah, they like when United had their sustained period of. I'm not going to call it success, but sustained period of. Uh, appearances and finals around 2008 to 2011 so three mm. finals in four years uh, they didn't make the most of it and that was mainly because they came up against the Barcelona team that was probably the best football club side of the last 
20, 25 years. So, I mean, there's no disgrace in, in losing no. to um, a football club that was that successful. So, you know, if, if you take those two finals uh, out of it, and, well, if you add them, United could be on five European Cups instead of the three that they're currently on. So, the yeah, I, I guess three. it's... <laughs> it's very much uh it's very much of your time as well and now that english teams are again proving to be you know having a sustained period of success in europe maybe we might see man united um tack back a few european cups uh from liverpool <laughs> but I, w- I will agree with you that maybe maybe it's um well i mean like if, if chelsea with, can do it last with who, season with whom with, who, with what manager are they gonna do that sorry well we, we'll see we'll, if we'll they get to nadine zidane he seems to have a good knack of winning that particular he, competition he does he does i mean i'd gladly finish 16th in well actually no that wouldn't no you wouldn't you know, do that I'd, I'd gladly finish in fourth position and win the Champions League four years and well three years in a row like mm. Zidane did at Real Madrid but uh, coming back to the point I think and something that we talked about earlier is that Liverpool's connection with the fans mm. uh, the football club's connection with the fans and that's kind of uh, it's uh, it's built by the the singing of You'll Never Walk Alone, which for me always feels a bit more uh, exciting uh, or also intimidating when it's sung, you know, on a Wednesday evening or a Tuesday evening in a dark Anfield as opposed to, you know, a half 12 kickoff on a Sunday. Under the lights. Um, Under the lights. So I think all that kind of adds to the aura and the atmosphere, I think, around Liverpool when it comes to European games, which for... You know, a lot of football clubs who probably play in half-empty stadiums at the weekend because, you know, we're viewers of the Premier League where we're watching sold-out stadiums every single weekend. But that's not the case across the continent. You know, even in big leagues like Italy, you know, Italian clubs will frequently play in stadiums that are half-full. So, you know, when they come to a big European night in Liverpool and they're met with... 50,000 Liverpool, Liverpoolians screaming you'll never walk alone you'd understand how it could be quite intimidating for them so um, yeah, yeah for, for me Liverpool in Europe it definitely has a, a significance that uh, maybe other English clubs don't have and a cachet I think that other English football clubs don't have that even when they haven't been successful domestically they seem to somehow uh, just have a knack of doing it in Europe yeah, that's actually very true. Like, you know, they, I think like Rafa's tenure and Jared Houllier's tenure is just even more, pays more credence to that, that like they had that reputation of, well, they can't really get it done domestically. Well, I suppose Houllier was good with some of the domestic cups, but but they seem to be able to compete well in Europe. Um, Rafa's team, especially like, you know, you think about, like I, I spoke about 2006 being poor, some people have a hangover year though in, in Europe somehow. But um two thousand and seven, like you gotta remember we were right there in the final again with with AC Milan. Yeah. Kinda want to see that uh, that trilogy happen. AC Milan, Liverpool in the final for a third time. Yeah, I don't think it would be the same now, you know, because it was almost identical sides the the two or three years there uh, yeah, they played I, each other in the final. Yeah, I know, but it'd be interesting because like their um AC Milan now are like doing a very much a money ball approach. So give them two, three years development down the line. It'd be an interesting to see two two teams that kind of um recruit in, in the same way and are trying to, to compete yeah. in the same way. 
I'm not so sure that there's the money in Italian football at the moment in order for no. Milan to uh, to accelerate at that pace. But we'll see. You know, they're well, they, one they, of the. They are, they're they also. Are, sorry, go ahead. They are owned by some massive like American investment firm. That it's it's hard to know how much money they actually do have. Well, yeah, like that's and we we've discussed um, Arsenal before and the fact that they're owned by a, an American billionaire who has access to seventeen billion dollars and. They don't seem to be spending. Well, they are actually quite. They are spending the cash, but not seeing the They're the rewards second highest on the spenders. They are. They are. Yeah. So I can right behind can uh, your lads, <laughs> and we're we're doing some good stuff too in the transfer market. <laughs> yes. Anyway, anyway, um, wrapping up. I think uh, I think we've moved on the debate a little bit further. We've tried to maybe identify. Uh, DNA as probably like a, a subsect of culture or maybe they're kind of one and the same they're just slightly different and depending on how successful your football club is you can uh, you can attach the tag of DNA to them if uh, there's already a culture I think we need I think we've identified that there needs to be a culture in place in mm-hmm. order to say that you've got a DNA I think that's fair to say yeah, we're definitely kind of starting to uh, zone in on it. And I think like the duration of a certain behavior or a certain thing and um, success and things like that are all starting to look like factors in calling something the DNA of a club. Um, yeah. We're getting there. Mm. And just to finish off, I think you've, you've been gagging to talk about this because it's one of the things that really, uh, I think, ticks you off as a Liverpool fan and it's you know United have got loads of marketing terms um, that we talk about but you love this phrase when it comes to Liverpool this means more yeah does it mean more like listen yeah like maybe it does to some people uh, <laughs> I, I, I fucking love I, I love Liverpool Football Club you know so um, but it, you know it, it it's it's just a it's a brand branding thing. It's like you know, I can't get past that. Like it just just feels like something that would be attached to, um, you know, Nike or you know, it's it's just like a branding thing. And for me, it's like you didn't need to do that. We've already got you never walk alone. It, that's got such heritage, such depth. It, it it definitely doesn't. It doesn't. It wasn't dreamt up in a marketing department. Why do we need another slogan? this means mm-hmm. more like it's, it's just wax of like American marketing. I don't, I don't mm. love it. I don't love it at all. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with you. And in, on a broadly positive podcast, I'm glad we've ended on Very a somber so. note when discussing <laughs> Liverpool. So <laughs> on that positive note, we'll speak to you very soon. We've been the landing. Yeah.